0: I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that, in my own time. Old things generally.
1: You're listening to Sherds Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature.
0: got my things and left. The sun was coming up. I couldn't think where to go. I wandered towards the beer hall but stopped at the bottle store where I bought a beer. There were people scattered along the stores wide veranda drinking. I sat beneath the tall msasa tree whose branches scraped the corrugated iron roofs. I was trying not to think about where I was going. I didn't feel bitter. I was glad things had happened the way they had. I couldn't have stayed on in that house of hunger where every morsel of sanity was snatched from you the way some kinds of birds snatch food from the very mouths of babes. And the eyes of that house of hunger lingered upon you as though some indefinable beast was about to pounce upon you. Yes, the sun came up so fast it hit you between the eyes before you knew it had risen above the mountains.
1: That was the opening paragraph of Dambuzo Marachera's The House of Hunger, which was originally published by Heinemann in 1978. The book is a collection of harrowing autobiographical short stories in which Marachera's experiences both in his native Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and as a university student at Oxford are channelled into a psychedelic cascade of blistering imagery and broken stream-of-consciousness narratives. In his own words, writing in English, his second language, rather than the Shona he grew up speaking, meant confronting the inherent racism of the language, discarding grammar, throwing syntax out, subverting images from within, and developing torture chambers of irony and sarcasm, gas ovens of limitless black resonance. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this confrontational debut from one of the most conflicted African writers of the 20th century. Just a short aside before we begin, Uh, this episode was recorded late in the summer of 2020. You might have noticed that we've been absent for a a little while, and there are a few reasons for this. The most important is that uh, some months ago my co-host Rob became the father of a baby girl, and uh, she's very much the boss at the moment. She's going to be the one calling the shots on Sherd's podcast for a little while. And the second reason is a little more prosaic and um, similar to lots of other people's experiences, I should imagine. I work as a teacher here in Poland and for a long time, during quite an extended lockdown, schools have been closed. And that means that I've been teaching online for the majority of the last year and working on a computer for really long stretches of time. So it's been quite difficult to keep up the editing schedule, which also requires very long periods at a computer. Um, I'd just really like to thank those of you who have contacted us asking when new episodes will be coming out, and we really appreciate the continued support. We'll try to get back to recording with more regularity as soon as we can, and uh, we hope you stick with us. So thanks so much for that. Okay, let's get on with the episode. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 33 of Shred's podcast. My name's Sam Pudham and I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, man?
2: Ah, yeah, not not too bad, Sam. Thanks.
1: Recovering from the ear-bashing from Dambudzo Maritera.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, it's been a couple of weeks since I, I read this. And actually, it's been a stressful couple of weeks and i i hadn't thought about this until literally just now but whether um whether this has made things more or less stressful <laughs> <laughs> reading reading someone else's kind of extreme mental anguish and you know i'm not trying to put my plight anywhere near <laughs> the kind of extreme god violence and racism and everything that ventura has gone through but it's certainly affecting and um, yeah maybe maybe it has kind of seeped into my unconscious mood a little bit I don't know what uh what about you yeah man I've I've
1: still got uh Maricela's voice ringing in my ears it's been quite a strange one for me because I'm reading simultaneously or at the moment I'm reading uh Gravity's Rainbow and you're aware of how like challenging that that book is or its mm. reputation anyway and this was like a, my sort of light relief <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> there's such an aggressiveness to this that it's it's a really confrontational read, I think. I should say, we're looking at The House of Hunger by Dambuton Maruchara, which was published in 1978. How did you feel about your experience with this one, Rob?
2: Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it wasn't something that was on my radar at all. And I know it definitely is for a lot of people and it's incredibly highly regarded. But at the same time, it just wasn't something that I'd really come across before. And even though, you know, it's won its fair share of awards and this kind of, yeah, I think especially in Zimbabwe is like a hugely important text. I'm kind of amazed that it's not spoken about a bit more. I feel like in previous years I've read stuff that's maybe kind of similar to this, but definitely doesn't have anything near the the power that this book has and so yeah I'm just I'm just kind of amazed that it's not better known and um, just kind of recommending it to people as soon as I put it down but what about you I, obviously this was your kind of recommendation is it something that's kind of been on your to read list for a little while
1: I've been aware of it for for a little while and it's something I wanted to get around to it's ever since I heard about it from an interview with uh, China Mayville he, he describes Maricella really interestingly as well, and I'll, I'll read that in a second. But you're absolutely right. It's surprising that this is not a kind of standard, sort of notable text that, that comes up in. Um in literary discussion very much. I mean, the name, when I heard it, Dumbledore Maritura, was new to me just a year or so ago. Um, and it's obviously something that was popular or was a bit of a sensation when it was published. Like you said, it it won the Guardian Fiction Prize in 1979. Um, and it, it, even made it into the Penguin Classics series. I've got one of those editions from the early 2000s, but I certainly think it's not in their catalogue anymore. But it really should be, I think, because it's a powerful one. When I read this this interview with China Mayville, he describes Maruchara as uh, an enormous influence on him and sort of encapsulates him and his work quite nicely in this little passage. Maybe I'll just read it. He says... The biggest recent influence on me, though, is not an SF writer. It's the Zimbabwean Dambuzo Marachera, who died 14 years ago. I first read him a decade ago, but came back to him recently and read all his published work. He's quite astonishing. His influences are radically different from the folklorist tradition that one often associates with African literature. He writes in the tradition of the Beats, the Surrealists, the Symbolists... And he marshals their tools to talk about the freedom struggle, the iniquities of post independence Zimbabwe, racism, loneliness and so on. His poetry and prose are almost painfully intense and suffer all the problems you'd imagine. The writing can be prolix and clunky, but the way he constantly wrestles with English, which wasn't his first language, is extraordinary. He demands sustained effort from the reader so that the work is almost interactive reading it is an active process of collaboration with the writer and the metaphors are simultaneously so uncliched and so apt that he reinvigorates the language which I think is a really nice way to to describe the experience of of reading him that there's a, a kind of interactive wrestling with the with the text would you agree with that Rob?
2: Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I remember us speaking when we were both kind of midway through this and uh, you mentioned this idea of kind of interactivity and yet yeah, 100% agree there's um <laughs> it's a bit of a, a kind of silly way of coming to it but um there was just this moment where every time I picked up the book I was saying to you that I had to kind of skip back like almost 10 pages to kind of find yeah. out where I was because the book itself is so all-encompassing that when you're in it you're really kind of overwhelmed by his world And then Mm. when you come back to the the page, it really takes a bit of time to remember where on earth you were. And obviously that's, you know, very much to do with the the style of writing and the kind of like looseness of the narrative structure. But yeah, it it certainly engages you and demands something of you in a very interesting way. So yeah, I'd 100% agree with that.
1: The uh, blurb from The Guardian on the back of my copy says, impassioned, angry, funny, and highly readable. Um, (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I would very strongly disagree with this just <laughs> <as> being <laughs> highly readable. It's not a page turner. Is you know you really have to push against it and and work with it. I think it it doesn't want to be readable. I think it wants to sort of challenge your preconceptions and sort of reorder your mind to an extent. This mm. book. So as much as I loved it, I certainly wouldn't call it that. Actually, the book that I wanted to read most of of his is uh his 1980 novel called black sunlight but it's out of print now and um even a p- paperback copy costs something like 400 pounds so i wasn't quite able to stretch to that but uh i do have a pdf copy copy now which I'm looking forward to reading. This book, The House of Hunger, the one we're looking at today, is much easier to get hold of. It's clear that this, this writer is thought of as, as a somewhat sort of divisive figure in, in African literature. I think he has many enemies as well as proponents. And um, I was reading an article that was written in the late 90s by a critic called David Buke who spoke of him as remaining marginalised in critical studies of African literature, and that this this refusal in him to claim a kind of specifically African identity. That's something we can talk about in more detail later, but it maybe explains some of the reasons why he might not be so so well known or as well known as perhaps he deserves but yeah just talking about the the feeling of reading this book there's a sort of brutal feverish energy to it isn't there i mean it's it's difficult and it's uncompromising and idiosyncratic did you find it sort of challenging on a, on a sort of narrative level rob just to, to follow in, in a straightforward sense.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I mean, going back to make notes with a kind of, you know, having had this first reading, things start to make sense because you know where they're going. But at the time, you know, you'll move from one sentence to the next to a, a completely different location. A character will answer a question from a completely previous scene um, mm. and, you, and you won't realise until a few lines further through that actually you've moved to a completely different location, time um there'll be you know there'll be no kind of signposts for you. And this is, you know, once you kind of get used to this, for me anyway, I find it quite enjoyable. But I think, yeah, feverish is a word that's used, probably overused. Yeah. Um an awful lot kind of to describe certain types of literature, but I think it's absolutely appropriate here. There's not so many books I think that I've read that have really it kind of left me perhaps almost feeling a bit drunk reading them. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there's a a real kind of disorientation which is just really really amazing.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like some kind of psychedelic cascade of uh, <laughs> of reminiscences, isn't it? It's like the way, particularly the the title story, the House of Hunger, is is constructed, definitely pushes towards a kind of disorientation and is concerned quite a lot with m- madness, you know, this this idea that the, the environment has, has driven the narrator insane. That lack of comprehension or stability is, is reflected in the structure of it is really appropriate, I think. Yeah, I suppose it doesn't follow any particular narrative thread. There's not a single story that we can follow. Seems to proceed according to these like rapidly shifting preoccupations via some damaged broken stream of consciousness it's amazing i think i suppose we should say that that title story did you understand that it took place in salisbury rob in rhodesia which is now uh, harare in zimbabwe of course but is that where you understood it to be set uh yeah i think so it's quite an interesting cast of characters there and, and very different from what i've found in in a lot of african literature that, that i've read the characters seem to be from a mix of different class backgrounds and there's a sort of clash of street culture and a more like culturally established educated class and these worlds kind of blur into one another so there are writers and artists and filmmakers and they cross paths or become or are simultaneously freedom fighters or drunkards and pornographers and sex workers. It's a real panoply of experience, isn't it? And uh, the, the narrator, interestingly, seems to straddle all of these worlds and to be quite chameleonic, doesn't he? Mm. It also feels very modernist to me. It, it felt like something rooted very much in a European tradition. It, in the story thought tracks in the snow the narrator is sort of chastised for writing what uh, are termed pseudo kafka dostoevsky stories rather than writing in a great african oral tradition i mean that there's a sort of hybridity to the text that we we can we can talk about but did did it feel Rooted in European literature to you as well?
2: Yeah, I think certainly part European, and then partly, as with the Myville quote that you said at the beginning, it felt like there's this beat element to it. And I was thinking, I guess, because of the like very particular political history of Zimbabwe that we'll touch on in much more detail later, but the fact that at this point it's kind of independent as uh, no longer ruled by the UK, but it is ruled by a minority white government. Mm. And so maybe politically has more in common with the US South, I suppose, like kind of segregated US South, where um, it's not the same type of, I mean, it's suffering absolutely the effects of British colonialism, but it's also now being run by a kind of at the time Rhodesian white rulers and so maybe that kind of is what's going on with this yeah because I mean the, this mix of characters mainly black it would seem yeah but a mix is really very different to anything that I've encountered in the African literature that I've read and so I kind of wondered if it was kind of very particular to what was going on in Zimbabwe at this exact point of time.
0: One afternoon the sun had rings around it its light was at once sickly and remote a sure sign that the rains were coming that night we were at prep it must have been about 9 30 a great charge of lightning exploded striking the humid air with a sinister violence at once massive rocks of rain hurled themselves down upon the sleeping earth the noise was deafening to the ear the sight awesome to the eye and the great torrents almost startled me into premature senility. Such a madness of the elements did not seem possible. Rude buckets of water poured over the school. It rained as though it would flood us out of our minds. It drummed onto the asbestos roofs. It drummed onto the window panes. It dinned into our minds. It drummed down upon us until we could not stand it. It poured darkly, plashed, guttered broke down upon our heads like the smack of a fist. It roared, splashed, soaked, stuttered stertorously down from the black spaces of the huge, mindless universe. It rose, it swelled, it cracked its sides like a whip. Silverfish seemed to leap in frenzy by the bucketful. The mudplash and sucking of it churned round and round in our minds. It chilled up to the shoulders of one's soul, The delirium of rain shook the school into a feverish excitement. The eruption was like a boil that bursts and splatters everything with its black acids. The angry skies drove boulders of rain against the school until we felt our very sanity was under a relentless siege. The singing fury of it stuck like needles into the matter of our brains. It boomed, it dammed up, it welled, it roared like the lions out of voice, It spilled down into our minds, soaked our words, and left us open-mouthed, mouth-wet. The air reeked of nothing else. Its sweet evil tangs stuck like glue to our clothes. Things floated in it, and they were our former assurance. At the cemetery, the cheaper graves were gutted with it, and the little wooden stakes and crosses were swept away. A drunken teacher, who recklessly dared it, was never seen again. That rain... It knocked more than the breath out of you. That rain. It drummed the drum until the drum burst, stitching the mind with thongs of lightning. It was like a madman talking incessantly, whispering rapidly into the ear of the sky. It was like a man who, suddenly bereaved, breaks down and hurls himself at the wall. It was a great river plunging over a falls and roaring the cerebral rage that can only be broken by the rocks below. The rain. It broke down the worker's compound. It felled the huts with its brute knuckle duster. It knocked down the mud walls and brought the flimsy roofs crushing down upon the unlucky occupants. All over the compound, men, women and children fought for their homes that night, building, rebuilding, groaning against its blows until once again the walls of that malice came crushing down and still the skies dribbled compulsively upon the earth that rain it chattered its sharp little teeth it foamed at the mouth against everything the argument of it left us stunned the words hit us again and again with each bucket full of rain something diseased had been unleashed among us Its inflammation seared like a flash of pain, a bolt of intuition beating the madness out of me. It cracked the skin of our teeth. My seedbed was utterly wrecked. There was in the rain the swollen seeds of an old feud. Its raw smell had reached down into the secrets of the earth's lungs. Its muddy feet had trampled and stained everything I held dear. It soaked the memory. It held the only son of former day's prisoner to its lusts and the colors of the mind began to run down the canvas until everything had ruined everything else.
1: So you have some information about Tambuto Marachera's life.
2: Yeah, indeed. So, yes, I was born in 1952 in Vengere Township in what is it at this point, uh, Rhodesia, to Isaac Marcera, who's a mortuary attendant, and a uh, Masvotwa Venetia Marcera, something like that. Apologies for my very bad pronunciation, uh, who is a maid. So, as we kind of see in the stories, is certainly not growing up in a, in a wealthy household. It's probably worth prefacing this entire biography saying that it's really difficult to pick apart what. <laughs> (laughs) is real and what is kind of like this uh self slightly self-aggrandizing but certainly self-mythologizing uh Mm. biography that that he also really creates and this happens from the very young age so there is in his biography this idea that at the, you know Very early, kind of primary school ages, he is gathering books from his local rubbish dump. And this is something that comes up in uh, House of Hunger itself. And this is a kind of thing that sparks some kind of literary imagination. And then the other thing that happens, which is certainly brought into his own mythology, because it happens in various different ways. But his father dies when he's still quite young. This is in 1966. Seemingly, he's actually uh, knocked down by a car whilst walking home in the dark. But in Maracera's various tellings, he's um, run over by a train, he's uh, shot by soldiers. But yeah, it seems like the truth might be slightly more prosaic. But it certainly does lead to even greater destitution for the family. Uh, and they're evicted from their home in 1969. His education, which is currently going on at St. Augustine's School, is at this point kind of subsidised by a scholarship. And despite this, he's kind of remembered for these times for clashes with teachers over the colonial teaching system but his mother is unable to support her family and becomes an alcoholic and also a seemingly a prostitute which seemingly has a, a huge Effect on Marichera, and it's posited that it may be, in fact, almost certainly it would seem that this kind of like run of awful events precedes the nervous breakdown that he has between the ages of eighteen and nineteen. This breakdown is takes the form of like an extreme hypochondria, but also delusions that he's being followed, or or kind of like are constantly in the presence of two men. And again, this is something else that comes up in the book that we're looking at today. So despite this uh, extremely difficult start to life he's an incredibly good student and does very very well throughout school and goes to study English literature at the University of Rhodesia uh, again on a scholarship starting a pattern of things that will be continued seemingly to the rest of his life. He's expelled from the university after only a year and a half uh, for engaging in student demonstrations against the university administration and I think kind of to do with kind of like racist policies that are going on within the administration. However and this I mean I, I tried to do a bit more research about this next stage because it seems to me kind of knowing what I do know now about the the way the English education system works almost inconceivable that someone who can go from a six-year-old digging up books in a dump to then his tutors at the university suggest they put him forward for a common room scholarship to new college in Oxford so this guy who's kind of grown up in Zimbabwe township suddenly finds himself in Oxford which Mm -hmm. I just uh, says something I think quite damning about the current state of university education perhaps Um, but anyway that's a that's another podcast for another time (laughs) Um, during his time in the uk and especially in oxford he's remembered for being once again and a, a very intelligent student but yeah described as an anarchic student <laughs> who decides to choose his own reading material rather than that that's prescribed by the course and seems to undergo undergo some like serious mental trauma here you know i mean i don't know how you can have this kind of upbringing and not but um yeah He uh, borrows money from a huge number of people that are repaying it. He's sued by Blackwell's bookshop for non-repayment of debt. starts drinking heavily and gets in trouble for assault of college stewards. And then finally gets in trouble for setting a fire in his own college room
1: so that is that is true is it have you seen that in several sources
2: the fire in the college room
1: yeah because i i wondered when i watched Uh. this uh, interesting documentary if if that comment about his trying to set fire to his college was true or not
2: ah well so the best source i've come across which actually has some references suggests that actually he just set fire to some rubbish in his room so i don't know if he was trying to burn down the college (laughs) but um it seems like one
1: of those steps that he he makes in his mythologizing doesn't it yes absolutely
2: and at this point the college kind of offer him an ultimatum which is that he admits himself into a psychological hospital and i assume they you know they keep his place and can return once he is discharged or uh he's expelled and he chooses to be expelled from the college So at this point, I think he becomes effectively an illegal immigrant because he no longer is kind of keeping up to the terms of his student visa. But he um, joins this rootless community in Oxford, sleeping at friend's houses and um, park benches, living this rather unpleasant life of a a homeless person. But it is also at this point that he writes the book that we're looking at today. (laughs) Yeah, the mythical version. Is that he writes this whilst living in a tent on the banks of the river Isis? Although it seems like, although maybe some of the writing might have happened there, it probably most likely happened whilst he was living in a squat at this point in London. Interestingly, I don't know if you came across this, I think I only found it in one particular bit of reading that I did. But Mariterra wanted the book to be called At the Head of the Stream, but his publisher, mm. James Curry, was the one that suggested House of Hunger because he thought it was a kind of better better title to sell the book. And I do agree that, you know, The House of Hunger is a, is a really amazing title and um, you know certainly very clearly becomes obvious why this is such a central part of the book maybe we can talk about it a bit later but the head of the stream comes in a very interesting part like this this phrase comes in a very interesting part of the book and it's a very different, maybe slightly more hopeful element to this book. And it's, um, yeah, it's a very different thing. I don't know. Mm. I find it really interesting that it could have potentially had this other title.
1: He's emphasising something very different about mm. what he views as central to the book at that point. Yeah.
2: Uh, it goes on to win the Guardian Fiction Prize in, in 1979 and uh, brings us on to the the next big act in the mythology of Margera he arrives at the ceremony wearing a bright red poncho and a broad-rimmed hat with a copy of Ezra Pound's Cantos under his arm (laughs) and in his acceptance speech he as I think many writers today would also agree with you know talks about how he doesn't like the idea of being known as a black writer that the idea of the, the black in that bit should be removed. And also points out the kind of irony, perhaps, of um, collecting prizes in London, whilst most people he knew were being killed or living in extreme poverty in Zimbabwe. But then, perhaps the most famous bit about this episode, he then proceeds to get very drunk and throws the china from the dinner at the chandeliers and is escorted from the premises.
1: I read also that he uh, he threw a chair at the Guardian's literary editor,
2: Oh wow! Well. Uh, yeah,
1: extra detail.
2: <laughs> well, the um, the anger at the literary establishment doesn't stop there. He continues living kind of in various squats and believes that his publisher is is kind of ripping him off or not really paying him the full amount of money. So he often in the next few years turns up at the Heinemann offices dressed in very strange outfits. Uh, I read dressed as an old woman. At one point, dressed as other people, ask, but asking for money on behalf of himself. But yeah, living basically in, in kind of really awful poverty and, and quite poor physical health. I also
1: read that he arrived at the Africa Centre in, in Covent Garden upon the uh, announcement of uh, Zimbabwe's independence, dressed in like a traditional English fox hunting outfit and was really trying to ape the the British establishment from whom (laughs) Zimbabwe had just been sort of freed. So he's definitely got this very confrontational attitude that manifests itself sartorially. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, (laughs) that's a very nice way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it seems, I mean, I think he's, you know, one of these people that actually history has very much proved him right. But um, yeah, there's a a distrust of, of power, which... In hindsight looks looks like a very good very wise decision um but at the time i think rubbed an awful lot of people up the wrong way anyway there's there's an awful lot of these scenes that are probably not worth going into too much detail here it goes to a book fair in berlin where he seemingly deliberately forgets his passport and it's taken into immigration control and um, becomes this huge literary sensation and is bailed out by the publisher remains kind of drinking too much and living a a kind of like very much anarchist life but in 1982 so three years after he wins the Guardian Prize he returns to Zimbabwe which is now fully independent to assist in the filming of kind of documentary slash fictional version of the house of hunger which you sent over to me and is is kind of freely available on youtube and is really really worth a look i mean the impression i'm giving of Marichera is of someone i don't know perhaps quite brash or violent or unpleasant and you you see this man in front of you as the opening scene and it's really harrowing i don't know if you had the same impression when when you first saw him in this on a mattress in a in a london squat looking so so frail and and stuttering and
1: barely able to answer some of those Mm. some of those those questions and there's this gas heater by the bed he's he seems perhaps even high or or drunk at the time um, yeah and really really broken really in tough tough position I don't like what I think I've become.
3: Even the success of my own books has made me part of the very system which is an intellectual rape of the black peoples. This sense of outrage, that's the stuff which makes people write. Too many of my friends died in the war. While I was um, busy studying, most of my own friends were also, as it were, were fighting in the bush. Um, they are the creators of today's Zimbabwean, and I think it, um the new black writers, the new Zimbabwean writers, among whom I unfortunately number, um, um, must articulate that outrage within what whatever context um, they can or they want
1: to or whatever I don't know Christ I think that part of it is is filmed in London yes but, yeah, but yeah, the, yeah. the documentary it traces his return to Zimbabwe and it's quite quite painful to watch his response Mm. to it I think Yeah. and the whole thing documents a bit of a breakdown the the argument between himself and the documentary maker he considers himself immediately a a tourist in Zimbabwe it's a very affecting uh, piece of film I think and you just you watch him on a bit of a path to self destruction Oh
3: I don't know, this is Zimbabwe for God's sake, hey look I'm back home uh, and uh, Zimbabwe Airport! I'm, I'm really back home! I... Uh, right, hey, look! <laughs> the first time oh, in, eight eight years. Years. Yeah. in eight years! In eight years! <laughs> yeah, thanks. Oh, the back one. Yeah, good. I'll just kidding it. it's my duty-free goods. Okay. Um, and... Uh, hey, look, It's really great to be in Zimbabwe. God! This is all strange to me, actually. I'm sorry. I'm looking at all this as a bloody tourist. I can feel it inside myself. I'm looking at it as a bloody tourist. Not as part of my people. No, I can't stay. Do you know? I can see it myself. I, I don't belong here anymore. Do you know? I've got, you know, I was sort of, uh, I was sort of crying actually when I was making a... I was tape recording a, well, something, um something. I've got this tiny cassette, and uh, tape recording um uh, the off from Gatwick and uh, uh, talking about my life in London and really sort of um, trying to summarise it because um, I don't think I'll be allowed back.
2: So yeah, as you say, it falls out with the documentary crew and I think despite intending to return to the UK once the documentary is filmed, he in fact stays in Zimbabwe and, and remains there for the rest of his life. Kind of, you know, living much as he does his London, seemingly homeless effectively. He also has his second book, Black Sunlight, banned by the government of Robert Mugabe who incidentally Machera had heckled when he was in London and so yeah once again this kind of distrust of, of power seems very very apt in hindsight but he's effectively kind of like banished from all public gatherings and he's thrown into prison and um, kept away from friends and the media. So this kind of cements his his reputation as this critic of the government but i think for his life it leads to this quite incredibly impoverished existence and he lives out his last few years as a, a tramp apparently writing in public on on park benches only a few a few months before he died and there's this very strange episode i don't know if you read about this at all sam where um yeah this huge critic of Megabe, but his sister, Sitsi, was married to an ANC comrade, so yeah, I guess uh, someone from the South African resistance. And she was killed by a bomb placed inside the television set in her house, so turned it on, and it explodes. She's killed her children luckily aren't and uh, the husband wasn't there but as this happens in Zimbabwe Mugabe himself goes to the funeral and there's a there's a photo of Mugabe and Marachera together Marachera looking incredibly gaunt in this kind of suit and this is kind of one of the last moments in this uh, like very strange intertwined existence because Marachera is to die not very long afterwards aged only 35 I think of AIDS related pneumonia And um, yeah, that's the end of a really quite distressing life.
0: I remember coming home one day, running with glee. I forget what it was I was happy about. And though it was a rather dismal day, the sky looked as if God was wringing out his dirty underwear. I was on heat with living. I burst into the room and all at once exploded into my story, telling it restlessly and with expansive gestures, telling it to my mother who was staring. A stinging slap that made my ears sing stopped me. I stared up at mother in confusion. She hit me again. How dare you speak in English to me, she said crossly. You know I don't understand it, and if you think because you're educated, she hit me again. I'm not speaking in ing, I began, but stopped as I suddenly realized that I was talking to her in English. I rushed out of the room and sat down heavily on a rock in the garden. I was trying not to cry. I jumped up and rushed back into the room and, dragging my box from under the bed, took out my English exercise books and began to tear them up with a great childish violence. Mother watched me in silence. When I had finished, she took out my food and set it before me. I pushed it away. I'm not hungry anymore. Are you sure? She asked. I'm not hungry. I insisted, trying not to look at the food. Well, I am, she said. And she began eating it right there with loud smacks. I watched her in silence. She made me feel so hungry. I could have strung myself up from the roof beams. When she finished, she actually licked the plate with her red tongue and licked each of her fingers in turn and gave a little belch of delight.
1: We've spoken a little bit about this tension between the almost dual English-African identity that Maruchara develops in his youth. I was reading an article by David Buick called African Doppelganger, in which uh, he claims that Marichera stands outside of the conventional categorizations of African writing largely due to his class status. By not functioning within the international exchange of cultural production, Marichera remains doubly marginalized, invisible in the West and misunderstood at home. But goes on to say that Madruchello's fascinating life and work present both a radical approach to the articulation of postcolonial identity and the authorial self, as well as a unique expression of sociocultural hybridity as experienced in the margins of c- postcoloniality. Quite a uh, Verbose little passage there, but I think it gets to the heart of something about Maracera's contrarian, divided, almost split personality as a writer. Um, And it's something that he explores in terms of his own use of language. Interestingly, I also read, just add one more biographical detail, that it was the opinion of certain acquaintances of his that he suffered from, from schizophrenia. There's almost something schizophrenic about his his use of language in some senses, I think. The edition that you're reading, Rob, comes with this amazing little interview with himself. Maruchela asks himself a a series of questions, one of which is whether or not he considered writing in Shona, which is his native language. And I'll just read the response because I think it's really interesting. He says, It never occurred to me Shona was part of the ghetto demon I was trying to escape Shona had been placed within the context of a degraded, mind wrenching experience, from which apparently the only escape was into the English language and education. The English language was automatically connected with the plush and seeming splendour of the white side of town. As far as expressing the creative turmoil within my head was concerned, I took to the English language as a duck takes to water. I was therefore a keen accomplice and student in my own mental colonisation. I love that expression that he uses there. At the same time, of course, there was the unease, the shock of being suddenly struck by stuttering, of being deserted by the very medium I was to use in all my art. This, perhaps, is in the undergrowth of my experimental use of English, standing it on its head, brutalising it into a more malleable shape for my own purposes. For a black writer, the language is very racist. You, you have to have harrowing fights and hair-raising panga duels with the language before you can make it do all that you want it to do. It is so for the feminists. English is very male, hence feminist writers also adopt the same tactics. This may mean discarding grammar, throwing syntax out, subverting images from within, beating the drums and symbols of rhythm, developing torture chambers of irony and sarcasm, gas ovens of limitless black resonance. For me, this is the impossible, the exciting, the voluptuous blackening image that commits me totally to writing. I, I, I love that response, I, I suppose precisely because it's, I suppose where the the struggle comes from in reading it, that many of the images that you're confronted with, the figurative language that Maruchera uses, is not drawn from any or doesn't seem to be drawn from anything cliched or, or hackneyed it it seems like the language is sort of creating itself anew as you're as you're reading it and i was really interested in thinking of that in emotional terms i was particularly struck by this really heartbreaking moment in the house of hunger when you probably remember rob the narrator runs home to his mother to report this piece of good news he's forgotten what it what it is and doesn't realize in fact that he's speaking to her in English and he gets a great slap in his face for supposedly showing off his education and there's there's a really strong sense in Maracera, I think generally of this sort of insidious influence of English that while he needs it as a tool. There are aspects of his own cultural experience that it, that it can't communicate. And, and so there's this idea that language is both a tool of, or like a force of creation, but also of erasure at the same time. And uh, I think that's really apparent in, in a discussion with this character, Julia, who pulls the narrator up short by asking him to reconsider his use of the phrase black and blue. So he said, describes someone as being beaten black and blue and, and Julia asks him, how can a black person be beaten black and blue? And he responds that it's just an expression and Julia says that he's completely mixed up and he never actually seems to look at things. And I was really sh- interested in that comment as it kind of really emphasises this degree to which a language carries within itself the, the traces of its native environment and that when you have a language superimposed upon another environment it inevitably fails to line up one-to-one and you know it doesn't line up straight with the reality that it's attempting to describe and there are necessarily these categories of experience that it can't encompass so you get these infelicities and cracks and fissures emerging in the, in the language and then seemingly in the reality itself that it's describing.
2: It feels like this is incredible mastery over the language. But perhaps that is exactly as he writes, something that comes from, yeah, this this need to kind of really fight with it, to have it do what he intends, which I, I, you know, as a a kind of way of speaking about it is, I think, a really amazing understanding, but also so fascinating that that's such an important part of his practice. There seems to be a kind of acknowledgement, I guess, that perhaps to just write in Shona would maybe not do justice to this constant conflict that's part of his everyday life. And so is this incredible honesty that I think comes out right throughout the book, I suppose. Alongside this thing with language, there is definitely just this other element, which is that if we if we take the main character here to be a, a kind of proxy for Maracero himself, the other characters kind of link his education and his interests and kind of just generally the way he is this kind of anti-intellectualism which i guess we see in lots of different guises definitely seems to be like hugely racialized here and at one point i think the the main character has a white girlfriend and this seems to be held against him too for much of the same reasons and so yeah the i guess the the language totally fits into this huge internal conflict he's quite clearly extremely intelligent and so therefore why shouldn't he Go to school, go to university. Why shouldn't he be travelling the world if he wants to? But equally, there are points in the one in Oxford, I think, in the in the shorter story that's set in Oxford, where mm. one of the few other black people at the college, upon hearing that he's going to drop out, suggests that he returns to Zimbabwe and becomes a guerrilla flighter. And says, like, I want you to take a long, hard look at me and, and tell me if I'm really a guerrilla fighter. Mm-hmm. And so this is incredibly honest understanding that actually he's his, his life is far more complicated than purely the idea of this struggle for emancipation from this kind of minority white government. That actually it's not as simple as, as kind of political freedom, that the language is totally ingrained and, and it's an essential part of, of his art. And that's quite amazing. He's kind of made it into a tool and it sort of simultaneously seemingly destroys him at the same time as um, being his primary form of expression.
1: One thing that you see happening in in African literature in, I suppose, in the 60s, I I could be wrong, it might be even earlier than that, is a number of writers turning back to their native language after having published in, in English before and I think that certain criticisms were, le- were leveled at Maricera for writing in the colonial op- oppressor's tongue but his, his response was always that Shona as a, a, a written language is just as compromised by a, a colonial presence and, and the, the fact that it is even a language on, on the page is down to white missionaries rather than emerging from from native culture and and he he would quote from the tempest you know there's these famous lines of calibans you taught me language and my prophet aunt is i know how to curse you can see him absorbing a lot of the poetic tradition of english as well as as at the same time that he's constructing these very odd stark and strange images that that seemed to be of his own devising. The text is also shot through with quotations from English poems. Mm. I mean, I noticed... Wordsworth in in one of these responses to the interview with himself uh Wordsworth allusion uh, you know there's Yeats in here there's William Blake there's Jonathan Swift so he's reappropriating English culture as well and and moving it into different contexts in in really interesting ways I think I mean particularly in terms of resistance and what he does with with William Blake which I think is really interesting as well. What I really like about his attitude um, is that it refuses to settle on any sort of simplistic or straightforward binary opposition, you know, to use the, the native language means resistance and to use the English language means co- compromise or subjugation of some sort. I like that he takes this very aggressive and confrontational attitude to the, to the language. I think it's sort of where the sparks fly on the page, you know, that's that ambivalence. And it's also interesting to think of him knowing England through through books, Essentially, you know, he describes that in his, this interview with him that he arrived in England as a very bookish young man, uh, having gained all of his artistic education in a language that's a sort of extraneous object in his own mm. uh, region, which must sort of separate you from from your native culture in some in some sense i mean I, I i see it in some of my students who, who study in english you know they're sort of divorced from polish culture in in some ways mm. but it must sort of set you apart somehow and make you feel like an alien in both places and i th- i think that what what you described as a kind of angular quality to the to the language is is a sort of result of this you know i think in terms
3: of language england beat me because i'm still using the english language You can even listen to my voice and hear some of the Oxford sort of influences. Even my own voice is no longer my own. It's like a madman trying to shield his own madness beneath, as it were, an acquired roof um, in some uh, weird hotel where he doesn't really know what's going on
2: it certainly seems like there's not the acceptance there's not any acceptance in the uk and he reacts against the kind of role that's being given him in for example the the kind of book awards but equally apparently when he returns to zimbabwe after this he barely sees his family there will be friends that he sees but yeah it certainly would fit in with that idea of a certain kind of alienation and i think he also returns I guess, at that point to Zimbabwe, which is maybe he's at this early point quite out of step with how people feel about the new government. I think this dislocation maybe allows him to not be swept up in the kind of uh, the nationalism of Zimbabwe's first black ruling party and kind of sees that the route that this is going to go. Perhaps this is giving him kind of prescience that he didn't really have. But that political position Feels like one of a of a complete outsider, even within Zimbabwe amongst his peers.
1: I mean, I don't think he, he seems entirely unaware of the support amongst other artists and, and writers for for Mugabe at the time. But he, I think, that absolutely he's he seems out of out of step with essentially the black community in in Zimbabwe and doesn't seem to want to align himself with with any particular movement. Yeah, I suppose we sh- we should say so. The book comes out in. 1978 and at the time Zimbabwe hasn't yet emerged as a, a fully independent republic and the the Rhodesian Bush War is ongoing. I was looking into this a little bit and I watched um, a few documentaries and one particularly harrowing documentary filmed in 1976 which outlines some of the sort of deep running inequalities of the region.
4: In Salisbury Cecil Square, black bandsmen play for the whites as they celebrate their occupation of Rhodesia at the annual Pioneer Day ceremony. It's 85 years since Europeans colonised this black African territory they called Rhodesia after their imperialist patron Cecil Rhodes. Today, a tiny white population about the size of Newcastle governs 6 million Africans. They no more share power now than they did at the turn of the century. Most whites came to Rhodesia only recently, but they hastened to adopt the simple colonialist values of the pioneer men of the land who still dominate Rhodesian politics. You know, it shows the differences
1: in living conditions between black and white populations and has interviews with Ian Smith and with, well, Ian Smith, sorry, who is the prime minister of Rhodesia at the time and who gets name-checked in the book many times, as well as with Joshua and Nkomo, the revolutionary and the leader of the uh, black nationalist movement, the Zimbabwean African People's Union, which is a, a socialist party. I mean, it's really worth watching, but you get to see just quite how deep-seated the, the racism in white Rhodesians there, almost without fail, every time that there is a, a, a white person interviewed on this, on this documentary, and in many of them that I saw. There seems to be a complete disregard of the very idea that they are a, a, a foreign presence or a colonial presence you know and they, they haven't actually been there for a particularly long time but they they speak about keeping the country white as it's as it's always been as if it's been like that from time immemorial you know they use that that term time immemorial
4: Rhodesia is now calling up every white man under 38 in the effort to hold the line against the black insurgents. Barry Borden was a volunteer at 16, Barry, on active service while still officially underage. Why is he fighting this war? Well, I feel as it's to do something for my country and keep it white, you know. Fight the terrorism
3: so we can have a decent country. I've lived here all my life. Well, this is what I'm fighting for. I'm not going to let somebody take it away from me. My folks, you know, came when this country was first thought of, now I intend carrying it on, make sure they stay at home.
1: It's, you know, it's surprising to me that given Maruchera's awareness of, of racism that he doesn't, or of the depth of that racism, that say that he doesn't, Want to support the sort of newly emerging Zimbabwe at the time, but why do you think that that is, Rob? Do you have any sense of it? Is it purely this contrarian divided self, or
2: yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about Zimbabwean politics to know if um, the runes were cast as such before, you know, that people kind of knew what they what was going to happen with Maccabi in charge, because I think actually very very quickly it did become it wasn't like a, a slow slide into authoritarianism it was um, it was very quick i guess at this point i think Mugabe himself is a maoist and perhaps there was looking at what's happening in in china at the time and in russia at the time and and realizing that you know they're, they're not about to get a democracy. Whether that was it, but yeah, I mean, just as easily, I think it, it could be a certain contrary attitude. I wasn't going to bring this up, but then I think maybe it is kind of relevant slightly. There was there was something whilst I was reading this that reminded me slightly of Céline, and I think it was... Talking to you a bit about it. And I think it's just in as much as obviously Celine is as famous for his writing as for the fact that he was a Nazi. Yet Lenin writes about what an amazing writer he is, purely because he is kind of like a, a writer of the working class. And um yeah, I think maybe there's a similarity here in this kind of disdain for all politics. For Celine, I suppose this comes out in a kind of I don't know, he goes along with what's going on, but his real interest is the people and you can you can really understand this in the writing maruchera i think you know far better he's kind of against everything but in exactly the same way the the rendering of the the characters throughout the book there's kind of like a beautiful dedication to them you know not necessarily showing their best sides all the time but a truthfulness that is is respectful i guess or something like that there's like a there's a certain respect that comes from his refusal to kind of like brush aside the negative elements of these people that are around him as well as all the positives yeah that kind of like dedication to the to the individual people takes precedence over any kind of political power and so maybe this means that he would have been against any political movement i don't know for sure but um yeah i think as long as there was people living in kind of shanty towns he would have been against whoever was in power
0: At this time, I was extremely thirsty for self-knowledge and curiously enough believed I could find that in political consciousness. All the black youth was thirsty. There was not an oasis of thought which we did not lick dry, apart from those which had been banned, whose drinking led to arrests and such like flea scratchings. I had got over aching for the unattainable Julia who had been left in my charge by my best friend. I was at that point where it's no use fussing and fretting whether one could, with a will, find some money and dare the unknown terrors of VD with a little help from Dagger. I braved it one stormy night and survived to regret it. Peter of course understood. You aren't a man until you've gone through it, he said. And I agreed and smiled ingratiatingly because he knew where the cure was, at least how to get injections in decent secrecy. The experience left me marked by an irreverent disgust for women which has never left me. Never again would I suffer wholeheartedly for any woman. But not everyone was scratching everyone else's back. There were arrests en masse at the university and when workers came out on strike, there were more arrests. Arrests became such a part of one's food that no one even turned a hair when two guerrillas were executed one morning and their bodies later displayed to a group of school children. There was, however, an excitement of the spirit which made us all wander about in search of that unattainable elixir which our restlessness presaged. But the search was doomed from the start because the elixir seemed to be right under our noses and yet not really there. The freedom we craved for, as one craves for dagger or beer or cigarettes or the afterlife, This was so alive in our breath, and in our fingers, that one became intoxicated by it even before one had actually found it. It was like the way a man licks his lips in his dream of a feast, the way a woman dances in her dream of a carnival, the way the old man ran like a gazelle in his yearning for the funeral games of his youth. Yet the feast, the carnival, and the games were not there at all. This was the paradox whose discovery left us uneasy, sly and at best with the ache of knowing that one would never feel that way again. There were no conscious farewells to adolescence for the emptiness was deep-seated in the gut. We knew that before us lay another vast emptiness whose appetite for things living was at best wolfish. Life stretched out like a series of hunger-scoured hovels stretching endlessly towards the horizon. One's mind became the grimy rooms, the dusty cobwebs, in which the minute skeletons of one's childhood were forever in the spidery grip that stretched out to include not only the very stones upon which one walked, but also the stars which glittered vaguely upon the stench of our lives. Gut rot. That was what one steadily became. And whatever insects of thought buzzed about inside the tin can of one's head as one squatted astride the pit latrine of it. The sun still climbed as swiftly as ever, and darkness fell upon the land as quickly as in the years that had gone. It
1: does seem very aware of the idea that that in itself or the, the condition of people or the, the kinds of characters that people might develop are, are consequences of of environment and and that is inherently political right like yeah humming in the sort of background of the novel is the black nationalist resistance to to white rhodesian rule uh it's very rarely front and center in the book but it keeps coming back and i think yeah he does seem very aware that it is those circumstances that deep-seated racism that oppression that has created these conditions and maybe make some of that brutality in the book or the violence in it a little bit easier to understand you know that there's this really interesting section of the documentary that, that we both watched where he talks about trying to reorder the brutality that he saw in his contemporaries or friends and, and the the people in the places where he grew up. He tries to reorder that brutality in order to give it a shimmer that makes it humane.
3: The kind of hunger um, which my country taught me and gave me, at least radicalised me in a a way which um, actually um, made myself and uh, people in my country look forward to changing things. In other words, it made me actually see the possibility of Actually, um, I'm constructing something out of that hunger. You see, how can I put it to you? Home? Home? You mentioned the word home to me. It means nothing. Uh, 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 um, Even the most mundane, ordinary human relationships, which most people take for granted. I've never really had them. Uh, Yeah. In that sense, actually, I can be accused of misanthropy because frankly um, um, I've seen how tenuous human relationships are because they always never depend on who is there and who is not, but actual existing laws um, which um, within which humans um, well that word relates and um That's why, for instance, in The House of Hunger, there is a total dislocation of um, 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 any sort of contacts. Um, The only time people actually meet is um, when they are brutalizing each other. I think my fiction is also an attempt to reorder my surroundings in such a way that the brutality underneath has some sort of shimmer which can make it humane.
1: And I think that that process of understanding that is it is a brutal environment that engenders brutality in people is part of that. You know, it shows an understanding of that and that, that maybe yeah, I think that is that is political. So I don't know that he sort of ever ignores politics, but maybe on that sort of party political side, he's someone that doesn't want to be sort of pinned down to any particular cause.
2: Yeah, oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I hope I didn't give the impression that I meant that he he wasn't political. Yeah, certainly no, no, exactly no, no, yeah. as you say that,
1: yeah. It's an extremely violent, dark sexually explicit book would you agree with this idea rob that that violence is sort of at the very core of the book
2: yeah that bit you mentioned the mother and realizing that he's inadvertently speaking english which um, brings about first a violent response from his mother and then later on a violent response from his father and that's you know a very young age and kind of continues continues throughout that every element yeah i don't know almost almost every scene is is kind of shot through with physical violence and if it's not there's um there's certainly a kind of mental violence or a a linguistic violence that comes from extreme mental anguish
1: this idea of hunger and physical deprivation seems to be deeply sort of entwined with this this violence as well doesn't it somehow
2: whether it was his chosen title or not the very fact of the the book being called house of hunger and it and it kind of playing quite a key role in the in the text anyway but yeah i was just i was really interested in the way that this obviously is in large places a very literal hunger where the narrator is literally often wandering around looking for something to eat having not eaten there's um after his mother beats him for speaking English rather than Shona at home there's a kind of a strangely symbolic but it's very hard to work out what's going on but the symbolic element where he refuses to eat dinner and she eats in front of him in kind of the most kind of like horrifically sensual way I think it I don't know if I've got a note of it but talks of kind of her lips smacking and, and licking the plate and um, mm. yeah, it's this huge element of hunger. But then also the way that that's never very far or even separate in any way from a kind of this kind of like metaphorical hunger that he talks about. Yeah, he talks of like a, a soul hunger that the the hunger they feel is that he sees in, in the kind of people around him is, is never going to be filled because it's this kind of completely unbroken link between the fact that they, they have so little materially, but also their psychic life is also completely separate suppressed that there's a hunger for every you know they're they're found wanting in in every element of their of their life i just found it fascinating that, that the way that shift from physical pain to mental pain to emotional pain was constantly going on within the book that sometimes things would be ground in yeah like a kind of visceral body horror only to then become explicitly political point or an explicitly psychological point and that the the kind of like string that attached all those was was never broken
1: it even goes it goes further into being also the force that drives the the narrator in some sense in in a kind of optimistic way almost hoping for that hunger to be satisfied or something there's this moment when the narrator talks about an excitement of of spirit that the students of his age experienced he talks about being in search of an unattainable elixir craving for freedom as one craves dagger or beer or Mm. cigarettes or the afterlife, becoming intoxicated by that craving. So this idea of ingesting is not just about deprivation, I suppose, but it it goes beyond that into being something of a sort of driving force as well. But you're absolutely right. I think it's all sort of woven together with this idea of the environment and, and brutality. I think that the hunger is part of the hostility of life for, for the narrator. I mean, it's on on the first page, we have all kinds of ways in which the environment sort of attacks the narrator. Marichella writes that the sun came up so fast it hit you between the eyes before you knew it had risen above the mountains. And... The narrator's home is termed the house of hunger, and that it offers only a kind of psychological malnutrition. So he writes, I couldn't have stayed on in that house of hunger where every morsel of sanity was snatched from you, the way some kinds of birds snatch food from the mouths of hungry babes. It's another sort of like culinary or dietary analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then that's continued later as well, a few pages later. There were arrests en masse at the university and when workers came out on strike there were more arrests rest became so much a part of one's food that no one even turned a hair when two two gorillas were executed one morning and their bodies later displayed to a group of school children. So yeah this sort of weird mix of like malnutrition malnutri- and force feeding is all part of the, the way that this brutal environment engenders brutality I think. You see the way that it transforms even little children in, in another quite early passage you can hear children outside the window in the process of talking torturing a cat and we hear them shouting, break its neck and you just realise from that from in- infancy the whole world, the experience of of the world is one that encourages violence and brutality. So I think that's one of the ways in which Marachera humanizes that brutality in the way that he described or that he mm. you know, that he wanted to
2: obviously we're talking about those on the kind of receiving end of the violence mm. as um those being hungry and i was interested there's a, a moment where he describes his brother who's beats the mother of his child almost to death seemingly and um there's a there's a point where he asks what his brother's girlfriend partner whatever will get and his brother retur- says to him like uh, what she gets he said and laughed like a crow that is fed well i felt cut to the quick by his gluttonous merriment mm. um i was interested in the fact that one that, yeah, it kind of goes the other way that this fulfilment, yeah, the, those dishing out the violence have like equally, they're a kind of a glutton for this. But also in that context, what, when you were saying earlier about that quote about a kind of being hungry and addicted for to freedom as, as kind of for Dagger or for this other drug, that actually this constant desire for for freedom for food becomes something like an addiction, perhaps, and carries with it its own problems. Their lives become so become yeah, circle around this this constant problem that in itself becomes yeah, the problem of, of like how to feed oneself or how to have some kind of like spiritual, uh, social nourishment. Yeah, it seems to imply that it has become an addiction which is in itself its own problem. Well,
1: it's suggested even in here, isn't it, that what these people craved, what young people craved, was unattainable, you know, that this, this elixir that they're looking for is not something that they're going to receive. I think, yeah, it even says later in that, in that passage that it all leads to gut rot mm. that was what one steadily became and whatever insects thought buzzed about inside the tin can of one's head as one squatted astride the pit the latrine of it so this this whole sort of gastro what was the term gastrointestinal what's yeah yeah <laughs> this sort of <laughs> whole gastrointestinal process being that you you have the illusion of eating something and it's not satisfactory and you you excrete it and the process goes on and on that's the kind of condition that uh, maricello seems to see people in and as far as the or the description of uh executing or perpetrating violence as being something gluttonous i almost see it like it's the sort of currency you know it's what you receive so it's, it's what you you dish out and it seems to be the only way that, that people understand how to treat each other. You know, Mar- Maricera says that um, whenever people meet or the only time people meet in this book is when they're brutalizing each other. That seems to be the the only standard of interaction that he sees.
2: Yeah, there does seem to be like a hugely transactional quality to the violence certain characters are found deliberately because they've done something to someone and so they then deserve to have that same violence visited on them it's like a a passage where a young man is is kind of like beaten up in front of his mother and rather than stop it his mother says oh you know don't don't do it here it's best if you do it in the basement because there's a kind of acceptance that that transaction has to go through the violence is is so normalized and then once they finish she dishes out her own violence to them as this kind of continuing transaction so yeah
0: with a resolute shake of his stooping shoulders he cried out triumphantly in the epistle to the romans it specifically says that loyalty rather than insurrection is the supreme christian virtue there was dead silence as he lowered his voice dramatically and continued in a more confidential tone I was also, like you, restless and impatient. Listen, I never had the chance, which you have now, of a formal education. My youth was a hungry and impatient one, but my hunger was not for the things of this world. My impatience was for the coming of a greater reality. Those of you who know me well, will know that I was a homeless orphan, without shelter, without food, without a father, without a mother, Without brothers or sisters, without the comfort of friends, there was a great void in my heart. That vast emptiness was the horror of the heart of darkness.
1: You know, beyond these sort of physical violence is this psychological violence that, that comes with this absorption of a white colonialist rhetoric i don't know if you remember this passage where i think it's yeah the mother of the narrator's child so immaculate the one who is seemingly also together with peter the brother her father is a priest and he comes to speak to the students at the school and the narrator interrupts his his sermon and criticizes him yeah the narrator says he came to address our sixth one. Twice and on both occasions found reason to rebuke my disrespect for the cloth. The second time was during my nervous nervous breakdown when I shouted, It's people like you who are driving us mad. I wanted to say more, but I began to stammer and he took advantage of that to say, It's the ape in you, young man, the heart of darkness. The, the way this character is described is as one who is fully submitted to the white colonial presence in in Rhodesia to the degree that in this put down in this condemnation of the narrator is this very heightened example of internalized racism you know with this not so subtle reference to to Joseph Conrad but the reason I bring it up is not just to show how these some of these black authority figures can absorb this rhetoric of racism but how it kind of works the other way as well, interestingly, in in Maracara, where material from the oppressors' culture can be a mode of resistance as well. Mm. So, so I, I I thought he was doing some really interesting things with these allusions to William Blake, a poet who's quoted many times throughout the the text and and alluded to as well in in some less obvious ways. Yeah, there's this passage where Maracara writes. I was drunk, I suppose, orbiting around myself shamelessly. I found a seed, a little seed, the smallest in the world, and its name was hate. I buried it in my mind and watered it with tears. No seed had a better gardener. As it swelled and cracked into green life, I felt my nation tremble, tremble in the throes of birth and burst out in bloom and branch. You know, this idea of the nation being sort of born out of hate it's very specifically aligned with language from William Blake's poem, "The uh, A Poison Tree," particularly this line: "Watered it with tears." In in Blake's poem, it goes like this: "I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. I watered it in fears, night and morning, with my tears, and sunned it with smiles and with soft deceitful wiles." The poem ends with this speaker committing a kind of murder so you know it's a parable about nurturing hatred and how the victim can become the corrupted one and that this kind of poisonous hatred is one that ultimately corrupts both the oppressor and the oppressed this idea of a sort of bitter seed of hatred that gives rise to a nation in Marachera's eyes is a weird kind of resistance to the oppressor because it envelops within itself the poetic and cultural heritage of that oppressor so it's very sort of tangled and and complicated he does seem to be regretful about not taking an an active part in the resistance movement when he was in Rhodesia right I mean he talks about that in the Mm. interview that we, we both watched In the introduction to my edition, Peter Godwin writes that Maruchara was filled with regret. They had not directly participated in the liberation struggle, as as had many of his contemporaries. And he's quoted saying, Steve Biko died while I was drunk and disorderly in London. Soweto burned while I was sunk deep in thought about an editor's rejection slip. I think this inability to relinquish either side of his sort of cultural identity makes for a for a very complicated well a very complicated reading experience and 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 one that that makes it particularly difficult to apply sort of traditional tools of post-colonial theory the same article that i quoted earlier written by david buke identifies that and, and he he writes that while contemporary theorizations of post-colonialism have begun to focus on the formation of identity within a broad matrix of economic cultural and political determinants many constructions of these issues continue to rotate around the binarisms of center periphery self and other the colonizer colonized and Marachara presents an, a challenge to this approach in that he seeks to position himself outside of the very boundaries of these debates again and again he declines to locate himself within a fixed notion of identity or role, whether via a fanonesque critique of colonial racism or through a refusal to assert an authentic African voice against such racism. It's this idea that I'm talking about that his resistance to racism or this narrator's resistance to to racism utilizes the the tools of the oppressor and and complicates any kind of straightforward understanding of of these oppositions.
2: It actually made me think, because yeah, I I completely agree with that. And it made me think about, this is possibly going off in a bit of a tangent, but bear with me, because I think it it might be viable. <laughs> um but the um there were a couple of elements in the book where it seemed to be i don't know the language seemed to me that it was potentially discussing elements of alchemy mm. there's this there's this bit quite near the beginning where he says that he was trying not to think about the house of hunger where the acids of gut rod had eaten into the base metals of my brains and then um, later on in the in the story the first story the transformation of harry right at the very end speaks about it and says and there we all were in an uncertain in country ourselves uncertain a land with a sly heart and ourselves ready to be deceived a morally corrosive atmosphere and ourselves base metals ready for the acids but i was kind of thinking in terms of if this is trying to use some of the kind of like language of alchemy whether there's something about something negative being you know something positive being able to come out of something negative that he's obviously not going into the idea of a kind of independent zimbabwe imagining what he himself calls like a a black arcadia freed by kind of black heroes. He's going into it with all the, the mess of what this you know incredibly brutal colonial past has given him, but maybe some good might be able to come out of that. Uh, it's kind of notable in both those quotes that the base metals that are ready for the acids are always the people, um, him or in the transformation of Harry, him amongst this group of friends, and so that maybe there's, yeah, the kind of latent potential for this, um, the base metals to become something far more valuable Mm.
1: Speaking of these transformations or metamorphoses, like the last thing uh, I wanted to ask you about actually, because it really flummoxed me quite a bit, the text itself sort of metamorphoses into this weird folkloric mode at the end, when we hear about uh, a sort of memory of, of the narrator's father who loved telling tales you know it's this description of him this is the father right Rob
2: I don't know because yeah it just says the old man was my friend hmm but it's, I'm very hard to say. if it's like the old man as a... I don't know, is that—is that too much of a kind of Americanism for this? Or is it, well, I don't I, know.
1: I, for some reason, I thought it was the the old man in like Oxford kind of, not vernacular, what's the word, shibboleth, the old man, mm. th- this kind of version. Because it's talking about the mother, right? The mother's criticising yeah. him for like staying on the breast too long, not, uh, not yeah. going out and fucking someone or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it is the father. So there's this... this, this figure at the end of the book who may or may not be the the narrator's father and the, the way that he enjoys telling tales and there are these memories of him smoking cigarettes and telling these tales very much in the oral tradition. I wonder what you made of that strange transformation at the end which is I sort of didn't see coming because it takes us very much out of any claims to psychological realism that this text might have
2: it's really odd isn't it yeah I find it very hard to place whether there's some kind of like strangely hopeful end to it I don't know I mean it's interesting and again it's hard to know what to read into it that it's this character who at the very end says that he's found the envelope, which ends up being the kind of incriminating evidence which shows that Harry is in fact a, a police spy. <laughs> and again, it's it's very hard to know what, what to make of that, what this character might represent. Because yeah, absolutely, like you say, it's it's completely in the folkloric tradition all of a sudden. Not a million miles away from the narrator who comes and sits down and tells his story in um, the forest of a thousand demons. Mm. Like, you know, Even the individual stories that he tells it's very it's very hard to get any sense of whether they're pure nonsense or whether there's something more to it so yeah I must admit I, I mean I really enjoyed it hugely enjoyed it as like a, a strange end to the book but I couldn't work out why Why this forms the end of this particular novella.
1: I remain flummoxed by it I mean the only possible thing I was thinking of is that maybe there's something parodic about this and that it's making fun of the more accepted sort of literary establishment in african writing in english that draws directly from the oral tradition i'm only saying that because of the kinds of imagery that we find in this section so there's the this image of the huge blood-stained egg which yeah. sounds like an abortion to me images of disability Walking on crutches, a dwarf, these kinds of figures, and although there's, there's, there doesn 't seem to be anything sort of parabolic in the stories that suggests that the oral tradition is some kind of dead end, I was wondering if that could be a sort of secondary implication of this this section
2: I think that could easily, easily be it.
1: So how many sherds does the House of Hunger by Dan get for you, Rob?
2: Well, I realized, I think I said this for the last one as well. And, um, yeah, in, in danger of um, sherds inflation, these sherds, these sherds are going to be worthless. But... Um, <laughs> Um, i'm I'm gonna have to give it like a nine or maybe like a nine and a half i mean this is it was just brilliant really really brilliant a voice i feel like i haven't really read before and um yeah like a horribly tragic life and i certainly don't want to romanticize it but it's such an interesting character and and definitely someone that I'd, i'd like to read more but yeah just just really really brilliant um, what What about you?
1: Yeah, this was a bit of a, a shock to the system, this book for me, Rob. You know, we're a bit older now, aren't we? I feel like up until the age of about 19 or 20, every new thing you encounter is like some enormous revelation. And although I'm always seeking after it it's very rare to experience that excitement of encountering something that feels drastically different from from anything else that you've you've encountered and this really approached that for me it's it's such a bizarre broken kaleidoscopic angular language in here that it really set me alight so um i think i'm gonna yeah there, there might be some sort of economic crisis with these sherds rob because i'm also going to give it a nine maybe we will have to work, work out a way of not being such soft touches <laughs> next time <laughs> maybe pick something that we really hate yeah <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely yeah uh but no such a, such a pleasure to read and and we really you know we focused on certain elements of it but there's so much mm. more that we could have talked yeah, about i yeah, think yeah absolutely it's it's a really rich text and it's something that you know, had I encountered it at university, I think I would have been interested in writing about this in an extended piece. Yeah, very, very rich and interesting. Maybe I can still write something about it. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. If you enjoy the music on the show, I compose the vast majority of it myself, and it can be found on SoundCloud under the name Sherd's Music. Most of it is available to download for free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.